We're going to get started now with panel two on religious liberty and the court. Our moderator, Steve Engel, is going to introduce the panelists. But first, I'm going to kick us off by introducing um, Steve Engel. He's a partner in the D.C. and New York offices of Deckert, where he handles a wide range of civil litigation matters, including administrative law, commercial litigation, constitutional law, and securities cases. He served formerly as the assistant attorney general of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice, where he essentially played the role of chief counsel to the attorney general and principal legal advisor to the executive branch. Currently, he's a member of the Advisory Council on Rules for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and happily for Scalia Law School. He's an adjunct professor there teaching separation of powers, and along with Don McGahn, former White House counsel, and Paul Clement, former Solicitor General, who we will hear from soon, he's a distinguished practitioner in residence at the Gray Center. Um, and then connection to our topic today, he and his partner at Deckert, Mike McGinley, have also found time with everything else going on to work with students with the Notre Dame Religious Liberty Clinic and helping to file some amicus briefs in Shirtliff versus Boston and Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, two religious liberty cases before the court this term. So it should be a great discussion. We have a lot of leading litigators on the panel right now. And uh, with that, let's get started. Thank you, Jen. Um, uh, and thanks, everybody, for being here this morning. We have uh, you know, terrific turnout here. Uh, we have really an exceptional panel. Uh, and I look forward to talking about you know, what's a pretty fundamental issue of religious liberty, uh, and particularly at the court. Uh, you know, the American commitment to religious liberty stands, you know, and this is not an exaggeration, really at the foundation of our system of government. Uh, it's part of uh, the, our mythos uh, you know, for the Mayflower and the Pilgrims, uh, it spread throughout the United States before there was a United States during the colonial era, found its way into the original Constitution, which prohibits religious tests for office. And, of course, it found its way at least twice uh, into the First Amendment uh, with the Free Exercise Clause, the Establishment Clause, really three times uh, if you think that the freedom of speech is so important to protecting religious expression uh, as well as religious practice. Uh, you know, given this long-standing providence, you would think that we might all have figured out actually what this means. Uh, but you know, the truth of it is, uh, is that the guarantee of religious liberty has been hotly debated, contested, and litigated uh, really throughout the republic, uh, and particularly in the courts over the last 50 years. Uh, and in recent years, uh, we've seen the Supreme Court doubling and perhaps redoubling uh, its interest in the issue. And every term, it seems, we have important religious liberty cases uh, that the court is addressing, and this term is, is absolutely no exception. Uh, now, uh, in recent years, the questions of religious liberty have frequently arisen uh, in cases where federal state governments adopt regulatory mandates that impose particular burdens on the free exercise of religion. You know, when do our laws require that neutral, generally applicable mandates find exceptions to accommodate the sincere views of religious believers? Uh, we saw these cases arise frequently during the pandemic, uh, where local governments' efforts to impose shutdown orders on businesses and the like uh, would often prevent religious congregations from meeting. Uh, and we've seen a lot of that litigation in the context of vaccine mandates, where uh, people with severe, uh, sincerely held religious beliefs uh, are being required uh, you know, to, uh, to get vaccinated um, now, and we've also seen uh, these, this issue arise uh, increasingly with respect to anti-discrimination laws that have defined government programs 
or seek to regulate private conduct in ways that threaten the longstanding and traditional religious views of many Americans. Uh, in addition uh, to these kinds of cases that we've seen and are currently seeing at the court, uh, the Supreme Court has also addressed uh, religious liberty in cases where state and local governments have read the Constitution's commitment to religious neutrality, uh, the prohibition against the establishment of religion, uh, as requiring the adoption of measures that would threaten to push religious speakers outside the public square. Now, this term, the Supreme Court has a number of cases that address these issues, uh, and as mentioned, we have you know, a truly outstanding panel to discuss them. Each of our panelists has done a considerable amount, not only of thinking, but actually litigating questions of religious liberty. Uh, and frankly, if I would do justice to their bios, we'd probably have very little time for discussion. But so let me try to briefly introduce uh, our panels, uh, our panelists, which I'll do in the order in which they are speaking. Uh, and then we'll have a discussion among the panel uh, itself and open questions to you know, what I'm sure will be kind of robust questions from the audience. So uh, our first panelist speaking today is Aaron Murphy. Uh, Aaron is a partner at the Washington office of Kirkland and Ellis, uh, where her practice focuses on Supreme Court and appellate litigation. Erin uh, has argued four cases before the Supreme Court, uh, and she's widely recognized as one of the foremost appellate advocates of her generation. Uh, of particular note, Erin is now counsel uh, representing the petitioner in Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, a case currently pending before the Supreme Court, and one of which you know that I'm sure we'll uh, we'll discuss today. Uh, now, Nat Lewin uh, currently practices law with his daughter at Lewin and Lewin. Uh, but, you know, he is truly uh, a legendary Washington lawyer who has been litigating in the uh, trial and appellate matters for more than 55 years. Uh, Nat, Nat was involved in litigating uh, these questions of religious liberty uh, at the time of the Warren Court, uh, you know, among other. Um, Nat was a founding partner of Miller Cassidy, uh, which for many decades was one of the foremost boutique law firms in Washington, D.C., and really in the country, uh, and now can claim uh, not one but two uh, Supreme Court justices, or at least shortly, uh, as among its alumni, uh, with both Justice Barrett and soon-to-be uh, Justice Jackson. Nat served at DOJ himself during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, and he has argued 28 times before the Supreme Court. Uh, now, many of, these, uh, many of the cases that he's litigated have involved religious liberty, uh, although as a, a former OLC guy, I have a soft spot for his bringing the case in Zivotofsky, uh, which uh, wound up uh, vindicating, maybe not on his side, uh, but a very important uh, uh, principle of uh, presidential power. Uh, now, and now, our third panelist is Mark Rienzi. Uh, again, I, I keep you know, talking about these folks, and I keep saying how great they are, but I'm really you know, not underselling anybody or overselling anybody here. Uh, Mark is the president and the CEO of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, uh, you know, an organization that for decades has been extraordinarily influential uh, in defending and advancing the religious liberties of all people of all faiths uh, in the federal courts. Uh, Beckett has been counsel or amicus in many of the key cases before the Supreme Court, uh, most recently uh, winning in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, uh, a critical religious liberty case decided by the court just last term. Uh, in addition, you know, I could go on Hobby Lobby, Little Sisters of the Poor. You know, Beckett has been heavily involved in some of these critical cases uh, in recent years. Uh, in addition, to when he's not running the Beckett, um, Mark teaches at the Catholic School of Law, the Columbus School of Law, and, and Harvard Law School. And so he, he seems to have more uh, hours in the day than uh, most of the rest of us. Uh, and, and finally, last but, but certainly not least, uh, Mark Stern uh, is here. 
uh, is the chief legal officer of the American Jewish Committee. And, and he, too, has spent decades litigating and advocating for religious liberty and other issues, particularly uh, on behalf of these issues that are central uh, to the American Jewish uh, community. Uh, Mark came to the AGC after 33 years at the American Jewish Congress, where he served as general counsel and acted as uh, a co-executive director. He's authored numerous legal briefs, published many articles, uh, and has participated in arguing four cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. So I may not have been as short and brief uh, in describing the panelists as, as I promised, but, uh, but it was difficult. Uh, so uh, I'm very grateful to be here among them, and I look forward to hearing what they have to say uh, now. Uh, let's start with Aaron. Great. Well, uh, thanks, and it's wonderful to see so many people here. Excited to, to hear about the court's religious liberty docket. Uh, per usual, uh, over the past few years, you know, this is this is yet another year where the court's got some some good and important cases. Um, most of which have not been resolved yet, but uh, one one that has. Before we kind of all, you know, give you lots of in- insightful thoughts about the cases, I-, I thought I'd take a little time to just tell folks a little bit about them. I'm sure some of you follow the court's docket very closely, but for those of you who don't, we'll just give a little bit of an overview of um, what the court is hearing this term that involves religious liberty. The court has four principal cases that involve religious liberty issues, um, and I'll start with Kennedy just, you know, because it's my case, so why not? Um, so Kennedy versus Bremerton School District is a case we've been involved in for quite some time. I think our first trip up to the court was like four years ago at this point. Uh, uh, but uh, Joe Kennedy is a, a high school football coach, or was a high school football coach, um, and he believes his sincere religious beliefs that have never been questioned on sincerity front, uh, that he should kneel and give thanks to God briefly after games, right? Kind of you know, right after the conclusion of games, he just takes a knee, says a quiet 30-second prayer, and, and moves on with things. Um, for you know, for a while, when he started as a coach, he just took a knee by himself and said his prayer. Over time, some students kind of saw what he was doing and asked what he was doing and said, "Can can we join you?" And he said, "Well, it's it's a free country, do whatever you want." Um, and students did start joining him. And eventually, over time, you know, the practice kind of evolved into him actually using prayer in post-game speeches and joining students in in some pre-game locker room prayers. Um, for about seven years, nobody cared about this or complained about this or thought it was a problem. But eventually, I, th- I think it was actually somebody from an opposing team school that, that, that saw it and brought it to the district's attention and complained. Uh, the district then spoke with Kennedy and you know, explained establishment clause concerns and the like, at which point he agreed to not use prayer in post-game talks to the students or in pre-game locker room talks or anything like that but said, I-, I think I should still be able to just, you know, take a knee and say a brief prayer quietly by myself. And I also think that if students choose of their own volition to do that when, when it's not part of any official post-game activities or anything, that that's okay. Um, and the district court, uh, the district, uh, you know, adamantly disagreed with that, um, insisted that he could not engage in any demonstrative religious activity while on duty and in view of students and the public. Um, and ultimately, you know, he, he declined to abide by the district's commands and ended up losing his job. Um, so he brought suit, arguing that this violated both his free speech rights and his free exercise rights. Uh, and the case actually, you know, the, he, he lost in the district court and the Ninth Circuit the first time around on, on free speech issues, and the case went to the Supreme Court. 
And some of you may recall, uh, the first time we went up to the Supreme Court, they denied cert, saying the case was in an interlocutory posture and there were some facts to still be figured out. But, but four justices wrote kind of a rather remarkable four-justice statement respecting the denial of certiorari, in which they said, just to be clear, like, we don't think the Ninth Circuit got this right. Uh, we're just not sure now is the time to get involved, and you know, hopefully they'll get the message the next time around. Um, they did not. Uh, the case went back down, and instead the Ninth Circuit uh, doubled down on its earlier holdings and, in fact, expanded them. So what the, what the lower courts held here is that when Coach Kennedy knelt to say a prayer, he was actually engaging in government speech that is not protected by the First Amendment at all. Um, and then the Ninth Circuit went on to hold that even assuming it was private speech, the school district not only could but, in fact, had to prohibit it to avoid uh, violating the Establishment Clause. So uh, we, we came back up to the Supreme Court, and you know, lo and behold, this time they decided they should hear the case. Uh, so we will be uh, up there in just a few weeks from now to argue the case in the last week of the court's term. Um, and it really, you know, it's a, it's, it's a great and really interesting case because it, it truly presents kind of all three, as Steve was talking about, you know, I mean, all three components of the First Amendment and how they interact and how we would say free speech, free exercise, and the Establishment Clause itself all work together to protect religious liberty. Um, obviously, you'd hear a little bit different story from the other side, uh, but... Um, but but I'll but I'll spare you getting into the entire debate about you know who's got who's got the best of the arguments here. But it should be it should be a very interesting case to keep an eye on in the next few weeks. Probably the the other kind of biggest case I think kind of most consequential case the court has on its docket is a case it heard a few months back, Carson v. Macon. Um, this is a case in a line of cases the court has heard over the past decade involving questions of public aid to religious schools. So probably any of you remember the Trinity Lutheran case a few years back um, where the court held that the free exercise clause prohibited Missouri from excluding a religious daycare center from a grant program just because it was religious. Um, And then a few years later, the court decided the Espinoza versus Montana case where it held that the free exercise clause prohibited a state from uh, the state that had a tuition assistance program from barring private religious schools from participating in that program solely because they are religious. Um, So from those cases, we basically got a rule from the court that the Free Exercise Clause prohibits the government from excluding otherwise eligible organizations from a public aid program just because they're religious. Uh, But the question the court reserved in both cases is whether it matters if the discrimination is on the basis of the religious status of the school or person or whatever it may be uh, versus if the money is going to be put to a particular religious use. Um, And that distinction is kind of at the core of the Carson v. Macon case, which is really kind of about if if you go beyond discriminating on the basis of religious status and say money can't be put toward religious use, is that, is that somehow different? Um, so this is another case that arises in the, question, in the context of a tuition assistance program. Um, the state of Maine has a program. Um, there, there's a lot of school districts in Maine where there's not a public high school available. And so they have a program that says that if you're a student who has no you know, designated public high school available to you, you can use uh, tuition assistance that's provided to basically pick the private school, public or private school, that you would like to go to. 
they don't exclude religious schools from the program writ large, um, but they they ex- they examine the schools and decide whether they provide a quote unquote secular education. Um, and if they decide that there's sort of too much religion in the religious education that a religious school provides, then the school is excluded from partic- being um, being able to participate, and students are unable to put the money toward attending that school. Um, and the, so this program was challenged, and it was upheld by the First Circuit, basically relying on that distinction between status and use. The First Circuit said, this is okay because it's not about um, excluding a school on the basis of being religious. It's about you know the money going to something that's sort of too religious. Um, the Supreme Court granted cert. There's sort of this has been kind of a circuit split type question. Um, so they granted cert to resolve that and heard argument. I think it was back in January. Um, so this case really, I think, turns like a lot on sort of the, the the case from a while back, Locke v. Davey, in which the Supreme Court held. This was back in I don't know, was that the 80s or the 90s, somewhere around there. Um, but you know, held that the state of Washington could permissibly exclude from a tuition assistance program um, people like participation in a, 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 a devotional theology program. Um, and you know, the, really, a lot of the question then becomes, you know, is Locke just a case that was about? A specific concern with money going to the specific idea of actually training people to, uh, you know, be kind of in the business of devotional theology, uh, or is it really does it stand for a broader principle that you, know, you can really say money can't go to any religious use at all? Um, so this is a really, you know, I think it's a pretty important case that has implication. You know, Maine's program is a little bit funny and a little bit sui generis as compared to a lot of other tuition programs, but I think. Uh, the court you know, has the potential to resolve a pretty important question there that's been kicking around up at the court for the past, uh, really for the past decade. Um, there's a couple other cases I'll, I'll briefly mention. Um, one is Shirtliff, which is another case the court heard argument in a few months back, but we haven't heard a decision from yet. It's a case that really involves kind of viewpoint discrimination on the basis of religion, principally. Um, so the city of Boston has three flagpoles uh, in front of its government buildings, that one of which flies the United States flag, one flies the state flag, and one flies the city flag. But they have a program where they allow private parties to ask to temporarily displace the city flag and put up their own flag. And they basically let like everybody who has ever asked put their flag up, um, including flags that had religious symbols, had crosses. They kind of allowed anything... Uh, kind of took all comers for for a very long time. But then an an applicant came along called Camp Constitution that's focused on kind of celebrating the nation's Judeo-Christian history. And they specifically put in their application that their flag was a Christian flag. Um, And at that point, the city decided, nope, can't allow that. Um, The flag is, by the city's own admission, like essentially identical to flags that they have agreed to fly. And they basically said, if you hadn't told us it was a Christian flag, we would have just flown it. Um, But you said it. And, you know, once you did, we we became very concerned that this was going to be an establishment clause problem. Um, So this, too, you know, is is another case about kind of the, the idea that, you know, is is there? Does the establishment clause really compel the 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 rule that, you know, even if all other speech is okay, somehow the government can't even in what seems to be a public forum allow for private speech for private religious speech? Uh, you know, it's pretty mm-hmm. subtle law that you can't. So, um, 
I think you know, it's the case that a largely turn on kind of reiterating those public forum principles and the idea that you know, even in a not entirely public forum, the government, the one thing they can't do is engage in viewpoint discrimination, including on the basis of religion. Finally, we have one case that the court has actually decided that involved religious liberty issues, and that is Ramirez versus Collier. Um, this is a case in the death penalty context. Mr. Ramirez was sentenced by the state of Texas to, uh, to execution, and he asked for his pastor to be able to lay hands on and pray over him at the moment of execution. Um, Texas generally allows pastors and chaplains to be in the room at the moment of execution, but it said that it would cause both kind of safety concerns and other concerns to allow somebody to actually lay hands on someone during the execution and be able to pray over them. Um, the court issued an opinion just a week or two ago in which it rejected Texas's arguments <coughs> 8-1 and held that uh, that the that this was all in a preliminary injunction posture, so they held that Mr. Ruman was likely to succeed on his claims that Texas's refusal to allow his chaplain or his pastor to lay hands on him was impermissible. It's a case that arises under RELUPA, not the First Amendment, um, So, it's, but it's a strict scrutiny case. Uh, I think what was interesting to me in the case is the court went out of its way to actually say that pretty much every interest Texas asserted was a compelling interest and really resolved the case almost exclusively on the least restrictive means prong of strict scrutiny. And I think what really drove the decision was the fact that the federal government and some other states have allowed pastors and chaplains to engage in the practice that Texas was saying it can't permit. Um, you know, I think the court kind of looked at that and said, look, others have demonstrated that this is something that's workable. So you know, it seems unlikely that you're going to be able to say that something about Texas is, is, is so different that you can't figure out a way to accommodate this religious exercise. Um, so I'll stop there and uh, let, let other folks af- actually offer insightful thoughts about all the cases. Uh, th- thank you, Aaron. Uh, it's helpful to, uh, to set the stage here. Um, uh, our, our next speaker is uh, Nat Lewin. I'm up here at a podium, not sitting down, because, as you heard from the introduction, I'm accustomed to speaking at podiums before the Supreme Court. So it's appropriate for me to stand up before you, not sit down, but actually speak at a podium. I appreciate the very generous introduction that Steve has made, but as usual, he talked about the firm of Miller-Cassidy. It was, in fact, Miller-Cassidy, LaRocca, and Lewin. And in fact, we will have three alumni on the Supreme Court because Justice Kavanaugh also worked for our firm. So it turns out that this 35-member little litigation firm will have three alumni on the Supreme Court. Now, uh, he mentioned Miller-Cassidy, and not Miller-Cassidy, LaRocca, and Lewin, and I was frequently asked when I was with that firm, how come I was the last name on the firm? Why was it Miller-Cassidy, LaRocca, and Lewin? And I would explain to those who asked, that they don't realize that most of my clients read from right to left. (laughs) Now, why have I come here today? I can only tell you 
My family is hysterical over the fact that I'm here today. The newspapers today have the fact that Speaker Pelosi and Mayor Bowser have COVID. And I'm told if I come to this group and I see no mask really at anybody sitting at a table here, I'm jeopardizing myself and my family. I have in the briefcase over there wipes, uh, tissues, all kinds of things that I was told I have to come prepared with. So it's all there. Why did I come? I came today because I think it's important to hear, for a group like this, to hear uh, what may be a minority view. You've heard about how interested the Supreme Court is in religious liberty. I think that's phony. I think it's a cover-up. I, in fact, in terms of Ramirez versus Collier, I had a piece in Newsweek, which I think is supposed to be distributed here, headed, does the Supreme Court truly respect free exercise of religion? And I submit to you that what the court has been doing with regard to religious liberty cases is only touching the fringes of religious liberty and not taking the cases and deciding the cases that really affect across the board Americans on religious liberty. Ramirez versus Collier, which is the last one that you heard about, is a perfect illustration. The court spent 63 pages of opinions, held an oral argument on a ridiculous religious liberty issue. Who really cares whether Mr. Ramirez's pastor touches his hand as he's being executed. You can't tell me that that really deserves the attention of the Supreme Court of the United States. I feel sorry for him, maybe, but I certainly don't feel that the court should have spent the time in terms of viewing that as a religious liberty issue. And quite frankly, the other cases you've heard about I think are also petty cases. I think Coach Kennedy should be able to to kneel at the 50-yard line and pray. But who really, is that really affect what Americans in the United States who have religious convictions really, uh, is it really important to them? The, The main First Amendment case, Carson or Macon. I did file a brief, an amicus brief in that case, but not because it is so important whether the one state in 50 that does not provide a publicly funded high school education for some of its schools should be able to exclude those who go to sectarian schools. It affects the state of Maine and it affects a nice theory that's talked about by the First Circuit. But it's not really of national importance to people who have religious convictions. And that's true, you know, it's certainly true of Shirtleff. I mean, these are Picayune cases where the theory of the First Amendment 
can be discussed among justices and law school professors. What is important? What is important is, for example, whether Oregon versus Smith should be overruled. Justice Alito wrote a brilliant, an absolutely brilliant concurring opinion in the Fulton case. I think it was originally drafted as possibly being a majority opinion, but it didn't get a majority because Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh, both alumni of my firm, thought, well, maybe it goes a little too far, although maybe it's right, but we don't know what we can substitute for it. But that is a case that should be overruled. The Supreme Court, that is a case that's important to people who have religious convictions in the United States. What else? Well, I did argue a case called TWA versus Hardison, which involves Seventh-day Adventists, Orthodox Jews, Christians who observe and have restrictions on work of various kinds. Cases come up all the time under an amendment to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that says that you have to make accommodations to religious observance. And at a time when the Supreme Court was at the height of its Establishment Clause craze, it believed that the Establishment Clause prevented all kinds of things which it ultimately reversed. At that point, Justice Byron White wrote an opinion in a case in which I argued as amicus, saying that a clear statutory duty to make accommodations only meant that you have to make de minimis accommodations. The court kept saying in little opinions that Alito and Gorsuch and at times even Roberts and certainly Thomas joined, oh, we're going to overrule Hardison. The Solicitor General came in to the Supreme Court and said, definitely overrule Hardison. And the Supreme Court denied certiorari on a couple of cases where it could have overruled Hardison. That would have made a difference to believing and religiously observant Americans. They didn't do that. And finally, in the limited time I have, let me just say one more case, which clearly the court has made fun of repeatedly over and over and over again. A case called Lemon versus Kurtzman, which Warren Berger, when he was a young chief justice, was very proud of. But by the time he left, he didn't even want to cite it. If you look at the internal memos of the Supreme Court, and I have looked at them, I've used them in classes. It took Justice Brennan to tell Berger, put in Lemon and Kurtzman into your opinion when he didn't want to do that already at that point. It's about time that Lemon and Kurtzman is overruled. Now, those are issues that the Supreme Court should decide if it's considering the religion clauses of the First Amendment. Thank you. Yeah. Cool.
Thank you, Nat. Um, and, and apologies to Miller Cassidy, LaRocca, and Lewin. Uh, <laughs> particularly, and to Justice Kavanaugh for having uh, undersold his bio. Uh, oh, well, and, and deputy attorneys general. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I knew Justice Kavanaugh at Kirkland and Ellis, and that must have blurred my vision. Um, uh, now, uh, Mark Ramsey. Great. Well, thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, I have the unenviable task of going after Nat Lewin. <laughs> Uh, the easy thing is like, I'm, I'm going to keep my seat because I'm going to leave the podium as, as Nat's spot, which seems appropriate. Um, let, me, let me try to talk about some of these, some of these cases, um, and let me pick up on something, something Nat said about um, kind of the old bad establishment clause from the era of Lemon, um, which I think you know, has had a lot of bad effects, um, not just in the cases, and as Nat pointed out, you know, even at the end of the Burger Court and certainly now, you almost never see the Supreme Court rely on Lemon versus Kurtzman, right? It's a case that, uh, that is there, that is a Supreme Court case that the lower courts feel obliged often to follow, but that the Supremes you know, essentially almost never cite. I don't think they've cited it in, in almost 20 years now. Um, and they've decided a lot of Establishment Clause cases. Um, I think in some ways you can look at the three of the cases that, that are up this year. Shirtliff, the, the flag case, Carson, the school case in Maine, and the Coach Kennedy case. And I think you can, you can kind of connect the dots of those as all places where the government's got a little bit of a, of a 70s-era Establishment Clause hangover, right? And that the, the ideas of Lemon, right, this, this idea of treating religion as, you know, as a bad or dangerous thing or, you know, religion as asbestos, uh, one of my colleagues sometimes says. Uh, but this idea that the government needs to be, you know, super careful about staying all the way away from religion. I think that's actually kind of what was going on with the government actions uh, below in all of these cases. And if you ask me to, you know, predict by the time we get to June and we see these cases resolved, I think we're going to see the court saying um, to these governments in each of these circumstances, you simply can't exclude the activity simply because somebody is religious, right? So if you take the flag case, they run zillions of flags up the flagpole all the time. They literally never turned one down, right? Until somebody said out loud, well, that one's religious. And then they're like, no, we can't run that up the flagpole. Well, I don't think the Establishment Clause means that at all. That would be like saying on the National Mall, you can have all sorts of demonstrations, but not religious ones. Right? Um, religion is allowed to participate, and religious people are allowed to participate in things that are generally available. And that flagpole is and was generally available. Um, and excluding them just because they're religious is really just, again, that 70s era hangover, um, that, that older and, and debunked, really, view of the Establishment Clause uh, ultimately affecting somebody's free exercise rights. And if you look at Carson, the same thing is going on, right? In Maine, they will let you take your public education funds to almost any school anywhere. Um, you want to take it to a fancy prep school in New England, you can go. You want to take it to a fancy prep school in Paris, you can go. Um, the thing you can't do is take it to a school that's actually exercising religion, right? So parents can choose all sorts of stuff they want. They just can't choose religion. And I think it's really just another example of the same problem of governments stuck in the old Lemon era way of thinking about the law, which, as Nat points out, is, is partially driven by the fact that the court hasn't actually gone all the way and overruled Lemon. Right? So if the court doesn't overrule Lemon, then all of these government entities, all of these state, local, federal, federal agencies, you know, they, they were all brought up on the old way of thinking about the Establishment Clause, and they bake it into the way they do business. 
And the result of that is they exclude religious people and religious actions in all sorts of places. Same thing's going on with Coach Kennedy, right? If the guy kneels at the 50-yard line and says almost anything, right, if he says the rest stink, right, if he says uh, vote for Trump or vote for Biden, uh, there's no problem, right? The thing that makes the government say, oh, no, no, we've got to fire the guy, is that he kneels and says the one thing that is, you know, is, is unspeakable, which is he says something religious. Again, it's the government stuck with kind of the anti-religion view that Lemon fostered. The Supreme Court did a good job for a long time um, in peeling that back in the, in the mid-'80s to mid-'90s. They did a lot of it. They've done a lot of it more recently. Um, but what they haven't done is tell the whole world, stop relying on Lemon, right? And until they do, the lower courts will rely on Lemon, and governments will rely on that Lemon-style thinking to exclude people just because they're religious. Um, so if you ask me to look at those cases and figure out, well, why did the court take those three, and, and what's the message the court's going to give, um, I'd predict it's a message of stop relying on Lemon so much. They, they, they're not going to overrule Lemon in any of these cases because Lemon itself yeah, isn't, isn't quite directly at stake in any of them. But I think the court can actually go a long way to ripping out the bad effects of Lemon if, in these cases, it tells the government to, uh, to get out of that bad 70s-era way of thinking about the Establishment Clause. Um, let me talk a little bit about the emergency docket and uh, the Ramirez case and then the COVID cases that are all popping up on the emergency docket. Um, you know, the Ramirez case is interesting for, for another reason, which is the court um, was getting criticized a lot early in COVID. Right, let me back up uh, two years now. It's too long, right? Two years now. Um, early in COVID, the court was dealing with a lot of cases over the church and synagogue lockdown orders, right? Diocese of Brooklyn, Agudath Israel, those those cases, right? And they got a lot of criticism for issuing important rulings on the emergency docket, right? The critics call it the shadow docket, um, as if it's like a scary, weird thing, right? Courts have to deal with emergencies. The Supreme Court has to deal with emergencies. It's nice that we can normally have the leisurely schedule of a Supreme Court case that it gets granted and, you know, eight or ten months later, you know, it gets decided. Uh, But some things need urgent answers, right? Sometimes someone's going to be put to death the next night. Sometimes people can't go to church or synagogue this weekend. Um, And the court will step in and address something quickly. Um, I don't think there's anything untoward about that. I think that's that's actually the court's duty to do. Um, But the court got a lot of criticism for doing it, particularly in the Diocese of Brooklyn and Agudath Israel case, where they, um, they got rid of Governor Cuomo's lockdown orders in New York. Um, I think as a result of that, we've seen the development of what you, know, you might call sort of a move from the emergency docket or the shadow docket to the critics to something like a rocket docket, um, which is what they, what they did in Ramirez, right? So sometimes when they have weighty issues on an emergency timeline, they've now moved to saying, well, if we're going to get criticized for deciding it quickly on the emergency docket, Let's just set it for merits briefing right away, and you can submit your merits briefs in a week or 10 days, and 10 days after that, we'll argue, and then we'll issue a decision. Um, they did that in Ramirez. They did that in the Texas abortion case, the, the SB8 law down from Texas, um, and they did it in the federal COVID mandate cases. Um, in all of those, the court did this, you know, what I think is a relatively new, they at least hadn't been doing it recently, move of saying, let's take something from the emergency docket, and let's put it on the merits docket and just go really fast. Um, and Ramirez was a case where they did that. Um, and, you know, I look at cases like Ramirez and Carson and Shirtliff and Kennedy 
Um, you know, on one hand, they may not do the biggest things in religious liberty law, like knock down employment division versus Smith or Lemon or Hardison. And I agree with Nat, all three of them got to go. They're all bad decisions. They're all bad for religious liberty. Um, but, you know, as I'm sure most of you have noticed over the past long time, um, the court doesn't always want to take it all in one big bite. Um, and I think what the court tends to do in these smaller cases is they tend to advance the ball a little bit, right? Ramirez reminds me of a case called Holt v. Hobbs from six or seven years ago about whether a Muslim prisoner could grow a beard. Um, on one hand, um, the particular issue, you know, isn't that important to too many people because, you know, most of us, you know, aren't in prison, right? Um, but what the court does can be very important, right? So in, in Holt and again in Ramirez, we see the court making the following move. They say, well, you know, I know you say a short beard would be really dangerous in Hult, or I know you say that having the preacher touch the guy during the execution would be really dangerous. But, you know, we can kind of look at what every other prison system is doing, and we've got, sadly to my mind, a long history of executing people in the country, right? We've, we've killed a lot of people. We've got a lot of examples, and we can look around, and we can see, has it actually been a problem? Has this actually interfered with any execution ever? Right. Uh, because the government can say we've got compelling interest and they do this in the prison context. They do it in covid. They do it in a lot of places. They can say we've got a compelling interest. But what I think the court is doing is it's using the application of the strict scrutiny test to tell the governments, yeah, but the facts matter. Right. The facts actually matter. It actually matters if um, this has happened a million times and never been a problem, because if it has, then in a, in a constitution that protects religious liberty and where federal civil rights laws protect religious liberty. The government ought to have to protect religious liberty. Um, that's, that went on some in the COVID lockdown cases. I think we'll eventually get there in the COVID vaccine mandate cases. Um, so let me say a couple words about those before I wrap up. Um, on the COVID vaccine mandate cases, let me just point out a few um, interesting and I think promising things. Um, one, on the federal power ones, the OSHA and the CMS ones, um, one, those cases did have religious exemptions built into them. In other words, they do allow employers to give religious exemptions. Um, and uh, Solicitor General Preligar said at oral argument that some people have deeply held religious objections and they should be entitled to exemptions. I didn't expect to hear that out of the Biden administration's mouth. It was good to hear. Um, I take the point, and it's certainly true, that partially in light of Hardison and partially just in light of where we are as a culture, lots of employers are not giving their employees a fair shake on that. And I think that's a problem. Um, but those mandates have religious exemptions in them. Um, and actually, most states and most federal mandates do. A handful have not, and those have gotten to the Supreme Court's emergency docket, um, one in a case from Maine, um, one in a case that I've been working on called Dr. A, which is a case from New York. Um, on the emergency docket, they've been able to get three votes, right? Uh, Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito, would be willing to go right ahead and give the relief on the emergency docket, even though it, it gets criticized a lot. Um, but I think in those vaccine cases, you're going to see a little bit of what ultimately happened with the lockdowns, right? Like with the lockdowns, what ultimately broke the back of, of the lockdowns? Well, it was, I think, the fact that ultimately the governments couldn't defend the idea that going to church or synagogue was more dangerous than going to a casino or going to the shopping mall or going anyplace else, right? All these other things that governments chose to allow in a world with contact tracing, right? Back when we used to contact trace, right? In a world with contact tracing, um, where the governments were actually trying to connect the dots of every spread of COVID ever, right? You just couldn't actually maintain the argument 
that church or synagogue or mosque was a particularly dangerous thing to do. It was no more dangerous than all the other things people were doing. Yet some governments, like New York, were trying to shut it down, right? The facts ultimately matter. And in the first 10 minutes of a pandemic, when no one knows what to do, um, courts may well you know, lean toward giving the government some deference. But ultimately, when you get the facts in, you just can't, you can't keep ignoring the facts and shutting down a constitutional liberty. In the vaccine cases, I think we're headed toward a similar thing, which is most states, to the extent they have vaccine mandates at all, have religious exemptions. Even the states that are trying to get people fired for not taking the vaccine, like New York. New York has thousands of hospital workers who have medical exemptions to getting, to getting the vaccine. Um, and, you know, I think it makes perfect sense to say no one should force them to get the vaccine if it's going to give them a terrible reaction. That makes perfect sense. Um, but New York goes a step beyond that. It says you don't have to get the vaccine and come on in and work your regular job and walk around the hospital and do all the stuff you used to do, right? So there's like thousands of people walking around in addition to all the patients, right, many of whom aren't vaccinated. Um, but, but New York says if you have a religious objection to it, you have to lose your job. And then on top of that, New York said, and you won't be eligible for unemployment, right? You know, as if they're trying to go back before Smith and try to, try to mess with Sherbert v. Werner and those old unemployment cases. If you're fired for that, New York says we're going to strip your unemployment benefits. I think what we're eventually going to see at the court, Dr. A is now up on a cert petition, what we're eventually going to see at the court is in due time, they're going to come around to those cases and they're going to look at them the way they looked at the COVID lockdown cases and Ramirez and Hult and a lot of these other cases and say, well, sure, vaccines in the abstract are the kind of thing the government might have the ability to mandate, but it's going to depend on how well the vaccine works and how big the danger is. And if we can look around and see everybody else is operating in a place where we can have exemptions and not everybody takes it, um, then you're not going to be able to steamroll religion. Let me stop there. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, I mean, it certainly does seem, as we've seen the last couple of years with COVID, that you have a situation which in the early stages of an emergency, everything the government say is credited to a very significant degree by the courts. And then as time goes on, you know, the sort of the credibility of those arguments becomes more and more, you know, open to question. Plus, the emergency doesn't seem to be ending, uh, yeah. in which case, when emergency becomes a permanent way of life, perhaps the balance uh, shifts. Uh, now, uh, finally, uh, batting cleanup, uh, uh, Mark Stern. Now that baseball season has begun, we can make those references. Um, th- those of you who have ever been present when Nat and I are on the same panel will not be surprised to know that I'm going to disagree with him in... Uh, Sorry, Elisa. Um, in, in many particulars. Um, first of all, let, let me say that both in the first panel and this panel, one has the, the sense of speaking in an echo chamber. All people who are committed to a particular vision of life, a particular set of commitments. There are a lot of people in the United States, and many of them are for better or for worse, thought leaders in the United States who have very different visions. So if you talk, for instance, of the religious liberty of the photographer in the Colorado case, and the New Mexico case, and all the other cases that have arisen, you will see in those cases religious liberty claims made by LGBT folk who say, you're imposing your religion on me. You're, you're forcing me to abide by your religious views. Um, if you go to Hobby Lobby, employees say, you're making me live my life the way you want to live your life. Uh, that, is, that California and New York have made that, with regard, that made that argument with regard to 
uh, insurance, although the costs were minimal and New York could have easily, and California both could have easily picked up the cost of abortion uh, insurance for those who didn't want to pay. But, but those claims need to be considered. And to talk about religious liberty as if those claims don't exist is to talk to yourself and not persuade the larger culture. How bad is it? The provisions of the Religious Liberty, I'm sorry, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which passed, if not unanimously, and there may have been one or two negative votes in the 90s, every Democrat in the House has voted to repeal those provisions insofar as they, they apply to reproductive freedom, health care, and civil rights laws. Every single Democrat. During the Clinton administration, the president was fully behind the act. His, his administration pushed it. We would not have gotten it done without them. And, and now, 30 years later, you can't find a Democrat in the House of Representatives, and I believe in the Senate as well. Maybe you have one or two. But overwhelmingly, if you, you ever got a bill and you got past 60 in the Senate, you'd lose it in an instant. So it, it, uh, it, it makes some difference. If you go back even to the transcript of the first voucher case, uh, Simmons-Harris, the court never picked up on it, but there were questions. Are these schools allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion and race? If you look at the Boston uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day parade case, court has a footnote saying this is not based on status of gays. That would be a very different case. I never understood exactly why it would be a very different case in, in logic. But the court is not prepared to say that you can openly discriminate. The same thing comes up in Hobby Lobby. There's again a footnote saying we're not talking about people losing their jobs because they use contraception. Um, in the oral argument in Canon, it was a, uh, Carson rather, it was a, a, I think it was a somewhat incoherent section of the oral argument, a bunch of questions from justices on both sides of the, divide, of the normal divide that we think of, asking, well, do these schools discriminate on the basis of religion or not? And, and, and you know, there are actually lawsuits. I think there's a lawsuit pending in Maryland challenging state aid to parochial schools on the grounds that they discriminate on the basis of religion. This was, if you remember, those of you who have long memories will remember the points of light and, and the volunteer programs that President Bush wanted to fund. The issue that was litigated was these places discriminate on the basis of religion and employment and who they admit, et cetera, et cetera. Or they force people uh, to engage in uh, Bible studies, condition of getting government uh, benefits. Uh, I, I remember speaking to somebody from Americans United. I said, I don't understand. This is when Lemon was still regnant, I said, either the Constitution allows you to fund religious training or it doesn't. But if it does, I don't understand why, why you can't then be religious. It doesn't make any sense. And they said to me, you're absolutely right, but the media will pick up on the discrimination came. They don't understand constitutional law. Uh, that, in, in large segments of the public, really large segments of the public, uh, look at the Christian legal, uh, Christian legal Society case, which was, you know, I mean, if the court pretends that's about, that case was about educational policy, it's lying to you. That case was about 
for the, for the majority was about, well, for, certainly for the school administrators, was about a group that discriminated or, or wouldn't admit gays or people who, who supported same-sex marriage. That's what, the, that's what the university was motivated by, no matter what they said in their court papers. And, and the court said, yeah, you can do that. We're not prepared to we're not prepared to allow people to discriminate in their facilities. Now there are some caveats there if they can't meet elsewhere. This this the idea of of religious liberty is a two-edged sword. There's a statute in Ohio that protects the right of doctors not to participate in medical procedures they find religiously objectionable. It'd be useful to have that in California, for example, but of course you're not going to get that in California. Uh, but now it's being invoked by doctors who don't want to care for somebody who's in a vegetative or brain death state, and they say we don't want it violates our conscience to continue to keep this person alive. I, not taking a position at the moment on the merits of any of these arguments one way or the other. I do think that to speak about religious liberty as if it were one-sided, if there were no burdens on anybody else, TWAV Hardison. It's a series of cases. You look at the post office cases involving religious accommodation of employees. It's absolutely impossible to get an accommodation because the union's position is that any accommodation is a breach uh, of their contract. And the courts have so far allowed I think that's a contract to violate Title VII, which should be void, but the courts have allowed it. When you talk to people in the postal service, employees, line employees, they will tell you. The only thing a postal employee controls is his seniority. And therefore, if you take that away from me, you make a difficult job impossible. Now, whether that should prevail over religious liberty or not, we could have a discussion about. But you can't have a discussion about religious liberty and focus only on the Sabbath-observing employee and not focus on the cost to somebody else. Um, I say that as one caution. And, And then... As to the comment that several people made about uh, Shirtloff, Shirtloff is one of a series of cases in which the court has struggled. The Sumim case, the Texas license case, where, where the court has struggled with, okay, this seems harmless. We could allow this, but if, if we adopt the plaintiff's theory, if we adopt the ejector's theory, how does the government keep a swastika or the Klan or all these other hate groups off? Well, you know, one answer is you can't. But the court is not prepared to do that. Even the most conservative members of the court, who would be most sympathetic to religious liberty and free speech in these contexts, are not prepared to require public authorities to display symbols that are broadly accepted as symbols of hate. That's a very dangerous road for us to go down because, after all, the Southern Poverty Law Center thinks lots of people are are hate groups because they don't agree with the Southern Poverty Law Center. But the fact is, that's there. It's in the court. The court is struggling with it. And then one last observation about um, um, about the Coach Kennedy case, uh, which is in a similar vein. I imagine we know where the political support is, the ideological support is for Coach Kennedy. Imagine that Coach Kennedy had done the same thing as uh, the quarterback, Kaepernick. Uh, Ka- Ka- What's his name? Ka- Kaepernick. Kaepernick, yeah. Did it in, in, in a racial protest. With it, with it, is the school board required to allow its coach to plunge it into that, into that morass? An argument that it's purely private speech means that the answer is yes. 
Do school boards want that? Do we really want school boards to be forced to do that? And finally, Kennedy is another case. There's at least some evidence in Kennedy that some team members felt obliged to participate in, in these supposedly voluntary prayer um, sessions because they, want, they were afraid they'd tick off the coach and they'd get less playing time. Whether that's true or not, whether that's sufficient that way, we could again debate. It demonstrates that sometimes religious liberty cases are, have, have what's good for one person's religious liberty may have real costs for somebody else's. And to speak only about the person who happens to be complaining and not speak about the people who'd be affected is to lead, uh, I, I think, to a dead end. Anyway, that's, that's enough disagreeing with Nat for one day. <laughs> hey. uh, well, well, thanks, Mark. Um, and I think this is actually a, a great pivot point towards opening a discussion among the, the panelists. I don't know if anyone wants to... Nat, if you want to take, take up the cudgel, uh, either by podium or otherwise. Gee, why am I not surprised? All right. <laughs> I'll stay at my seat for this exchange. I mean, I came here, as I said, to be able to talk to you about what I think is a misleading impression regarding the Supreme Court and religious liberty. But I had a second motive. And a second motive was to confront Mark Rienzi and Mark Stern. Because I think they are wrong in various ways. Mark Rienzi first, because we did have I have, and I mention in this piece, the Newsweek piece that has been distributed, that I recently filed a petition for certiorari for a group of Jewish congregants who are really disabled and prevented from coming to synagogue on Saturday mornings because there is a group of acknowledged anti-Semites I mean, there's no question. They say that they are anti-Semitic and they stand around the synagogue with signs designed to intimidate people who want to come to worship. To me, that is a central liberty under the First Amendment, the right to worship, the right without any interference to be able to go and pray at a house of worship. When I read about a Sixth Circuit decision that said that, no, this is simply sort of uh, Arab-Israeli uh, free speech issue. It isn't, but that's not even the main point. The main point is that an intimidation of the right to worship goes to the heart of the First Amendment. And when I said this to Mark Rienzi, expecting that the Beckett Fund would be the first that would support our position, he said, oh no, we are supporting the anti-abortionists who stand up in front of the abortion clinics and they protest and they have a right to go and protest in front of the abortion clinics. And therefore, it's free speech to stand up at the synagogue and tell the people who are going to worship, no, Jewish power corrupts. Jews should not have any more Holocaust movies. 
he said to me, free speech controls these cases. Why? Because anti-abortionists should have a right to protest in front of the abortion clinics. And I said to him, the right to worship is one that the founding fathers thought was essential. The right to an abortion may be constitutional today. It may not be constitutional six months from now, but it's a very recent development. You have a right to protest maybe the abortion clinics and you want to stand in front of them, but that doesn't give you the right to prevent people from going to worship. That, to me, is an important First Amendment religious liberty issue. And I want today to hear from Mark Rienzi whether the Beckett Fund is going to support the Jewish congregants who want to worship at their synagogue and are surrounded by anti-Semites who have prevented people from going into worship. That's Mark Rienzi. With regard to Mark Stern, I'm here today because Mark Stern (laughs) says, and you heard him say it, gee, there are other people who are affected by religious invocation of religious rights. We have to consider them. Now, one minute now. Are other people forced to spend money in order to accommodate the disabled? Do you have to put up ramps in order to make an accommodation for those people who are disabled? What about affirmative action? Are people who may be more qualified pushed off to one side in order to overcome a history of racism? What about those people? Aren't they hurt? No. No. Today's society says we have to do affirmative action. We have to make accommodations for the disabled. But God forbid, if you try to put religious rights as being paramount, Mark Stern will tell you, you haven't taken account of all these other people who are inconvenienced by what is done. I would like to hear Mark Stern address those questions. All right. I, I, go I think there's been a challenge, but uh, we'll, we'll start with Mark Rienzi. I go first. I would agree with you on the <laughs> I go first. Um, so, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give my, my response briefly to Nat Lewin. Um, I, I won't do it by doing all the details of our, of our conversation. Um, but I'll say the following. I am deeply sympathetic um, to the plight of people who have to walk by angry, nasty protesters every time they want to go into worship. I think that's nasty, awful, and wrong. Um, And I think to the extent those protesters intimidate somebody, stop them from going in, block the door, engage in violence, engage in what's legally described, uh, defined as harassment, um, I think all those things are enforceable. Um, I don't think the First Amendment protects, in the abortion context or the religion context, somebody who wants to block a door, issue a threat, or engage in violence. Uh, so I think all of that is, is true. 
and I think Nat's clients are going through something terrible, and I think people um, should not have to do that to go into exercise religion. Um, all that said, um, I think we do have a First Amendment that allows people to engage in peaceful speech. I don't know all the factual details, and if, as Nat says, people are engaged in actual intimidation or threats, I think those have always been prescribable under the First Amendment and would remain so. Um, but I think uh, Chief Judge Sutton's opinion in the Sixth Circuit, at least as I read it, sounded like pretty straightforward First Amendment law. Um, and I don't think that because of a lack of commitment to religious liberty for all, um, I think that because of a commitment to the First Amendment. Um, I wish Nat well on his cert petition. Maybe he's right. Um, I'd be perfectly happy if those folks didn't have to walk through the gauntlet there. Um, I'd be a little bit concerned about what would be the remaining of our First Amendment if we said, well, if someone's going to engage in a constitutional right, um, there are going to be limits on how and how much you speak outside of it, right? So um, what would it do to protest outside of the press or protest outside of um, other protected activities? And, and I'm with Nat. I don't think abortion is a constitutional right on par with religious liberty. It's not. It's something the court made up. I hope in Dobbs they get rid of it. But at the end of the day, we have constitutional rights like that, and we have some judges who would be downright eager to say, when someone's exercising that constitutional right, Eleanor McCullen, who was my client in the abortion case Nat mentioned, shouldn't be allowed to stand outside that abortion clinic and offer women help. You know, I think and I fought very hard to say Eleanor McCullen has the right to stand on the sidewalk and to offer help and assistance, even if the clinics say women don't want it, even if no one wants to hear it, even if it is a constitutional right, which, again, I don't think it should be. Um, ultimately, I think people do have the right to disagree. So if it's intimidation, if it's violence, if it's obstruction, if it interferes with your ability to have your religious ceremony inside, I think all of those things are prescribable and should be prescribed in many circumstances. Um, but I also think the court is, is not likely to say that you can't stand outside and peacefully say something ugly and nasty. Unfortunately, the First Amendment protects people's rights to say ugly, nasty stuff. Thanks, Mark. Mark Stern, you're uh... one, one fun side line, and I think Mark's analysis is entirely correct uh, in our case. And factually, as far as I understand it, the Ann Arbor police were perfectly willing to ensure that you could get access to the building. You simply had to undergo the unpleasantness. In general, I think that's something we need to learn in our First Amendment activities nowadays. It's under broad enough challenge in, is in our universities where the argument is an argument makes me uncomfortable, you shouldn't have the right to say it. So I think it's a fairly dangerous road to go on. But the fun fact about that case is for years, the synagogue had a fundraising project. There would be a betting pool every week as to how many protesters would be outside the synagogue. And made a fair amount of money that way. Somebody <laughs> finally got fed up and decided enough was enough. Um, anyway, um, on, first of all, I, that misquotes me a little bit. I did not say, deliberately did not say, <clears throat> that the claims of others trump. I said they need to be considered. And the strength of those claims is going to vary. My own view for years when I was in the American Jewish Congress, I was able to assert this publicly, 
is it if there's another photographer down the block or another pharmacy down the block where you can get the plan B, then you shouldn't force this pharmacy or this photographer to do it. If there's no other pharmacy or no other photographer, and that's a different case because the rights balance differently. All I said is that you need to consider both sets of interests. I think as well in this culture, and I adhere to this view, the non-discrimination principle is now so strongly held and, and so unchallengeable that you need to think very carefully before you go up and fight. It doesn't mean you shouldn't. It doesn't mean that, really, that, that the Equal Protection Clause is the only clause in the Constitution. That's a mistake many make. Many law professors start from that assumption. Somehow the Equal Protection Clause, de facto, overruled free act the free exercise clause. But to act and to speak as if those trends did not exist in society, and even the conservative members of the court who have been sympathetic to religious liberty have been very careful not to attack that principle head on so far. They've carved it out. They've walked away from it. It is an indication that people need to be listening to. And one last anecdote from the days. I don't remember if it was in connection with RIFRA or Arlupa. They merged in my mind. But in one of them, we had the statute drafted. And then, I guess it was OLC, sends it around to all the agencies in government, comment on this draft, the president would like to endorse it. Tell us how it's going to affect your agency. And all sorts of stuff popped up that in a million years we never would have dreamed about. What do we know what goes on in the Bureau of Land Management in Montana? We have no idea. And we sharpened the bill as a result of those comments. There are things that we weren't essential. We dropped them. Things we made the language clear. My point is that it's a very big country. It's a very complex country. There are lots of views. And I think there's a lot to be said for the Supreme Court. It would have been nice if Employment Division versus Smith had never been decided, right? I thought it was wrong at the time. I did petition for a hearing. I still think it's wrong. Having said that, we are where we are 30 years down the road. The culture has changed. There's a lot to be said for proceeding carefully, because if you get a decision that's hugely unpopular in large parts of the country, it may not have legs. This is a mistake, frankly, I watched from inside a liberal organization as an early supporter of abortion rights in, in, the, in the 60s yet. Um, but we watched with amazement and pro-choice groups simply doing nothing but point to the Supreme Court decision. They let the pro-life groups organize, they let them mobilize public opinion, and all that those groups would do is say, excuse me, Roe v. Wade. They make no attempt to marshal public opinion, to do the hard legislative work. They simply rested on a Supreme Court decision. So even if Employment Division versus Smith is overturned tomorrow, you could have Congress could challenge it in dozens of ways. The fund, funding, for example, any number of ways. So you need to pay attention to the culture in which you're working, and not just the people who share your views, but people who feel differently. And, and just take that into account as you map your strategies, and you formulate your arguments, and you pick your cases. Thank you. I think, I think what we've discovered is that 75 minutes is, is actually not enough time uh, to discuss uh, 
in any detail these issues, much less to get to any uh, active discussion about some of the cases pending before the court, uh, which you know, I, I would predict that these issues will not be resolved at the end of this term. Uh, uh, and that, my own theory on why the court takes religious liberty cases, they always have, even in less oh. political times, because they beat bankruptcy code and tax uh, cases. <laughs> there, there is no, there is no, well, I mean, my, and since we're, we're out of time, but my, my thought on, on Nat's comments about uh, sort of the picky nature of these cases is, one, this is not new, of course, right? I mean, I mean, part of it for logical reasons, uh, religious majorities don't need the protection of the courts, and so religious minorities are most likely to find themselves uh, you know, on the losing side of government programs, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses, whether it's the Church of Babalu Lukamai, you know, or whether it's, uh, you know, there you go, um, you know, or, 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 or Native American peyote users as well. And then incrementalism, of course, is, is something that we've seen in a variety of contexts, but how long it lasts and kind of where the court goes with, you know, the, the current court is, you know, I think something that we'll, we'll see maybe as soon as, as June. But uh, unfortunately, we ran out of time for questions for the audience. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's really a great discussion. And so thank the panelists and, you know, for the...